Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, John. As you're seated, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. We took Joshua 3 last week. Joshua 3 and 4 go together. They tell one story. And it's providential that the Lord would have us at Joshua 4, the story of Memorial Stones here on Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day weekend is a little different here at Hickory Grove this year. We have our own Memorial Day made special because just yesterday, the oldest living, we think, the oldest living veteran from World War II, Tom Easterling, went to be with the Lord yesterday. 98 years old. Tom joined the war effort after being a farmer. He showed an aptitude to fly. And they started training him. They put him in a P-47 Thunderbird. P-47 Thunderbird was the workhorse of World War II. A lot of us think of P-51 Mustang. It's kind of the romantic plane from World War II. I drive a car named after P-51 Mustang. But it was the P-47 that did all the work. It was a bomber and fighter, short-range bomber. And after crossing the English Channel and the Allied invasion of Normandy and it looked like the war effort was coming to a close as Germany stood defeated, and yet there was a salient. We know it as the Battle of the Bulge. 68 missions Tom Easterly flew in World War II over from France over into Germany. He didn't fly as 69th because his 68th ended in a crash. Dropped his payload at 2,000 feet and banked over and came back around because he had enough ammunition. And it's what those guys did. They faulted. They didn't have anything else left. And he had enough ammunition in his 50 caliber machine guns to come back over a Nazi tank and into a, a train. And as he fired, strafing those two things, either a wheel or a fragment came up. He was so close to the ground, when the train blew up, it came up and cut off one of his wings. Pulled the ripcord and bailed out and broke both legs. Was taken prisoner. It's been a year in a POW camp, and finally, when near the end of the war, when America finally came through and freed the prisoners, uh, he escaped in a car and made it to the American lines. But he couldn't drive because he couldn't walk because he didn't receive any medical attention for a year after getting home. He was in a body cast. 30 hospital visits. Finally, when he was able to walk out and got married and started his life like so many of those guys did, he never, ever actually talked about it. His daughter knew that he had spent time in the war, so she pressed him on the issue, and he told her that story and then he wrote it down. It became a book. Now two books. You can get one of them in our library. The story of our own hero. That's just one man that points to all of those that have sacrificed that we celebrate and remember on Memorial Day. Memorial Day, it sanctifies for us the nobility, the honor of self-sacrifice, which is a picture of common grace. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. But that common grace of self-sacrifice narrows down and points us to the specific grace. Every story of self-sacrifice is an opaque reminder of the one true story of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, dying on the cross to purchase sinners, to redeem men and women just like me and you. 
So Memorial Day puts our eyes on those that have sacrificed their lives, that have died, and yet our eyes don't stop there. We raise them up to see the beauty of who Jesus is. And that's just what we want to do in Joshua chapter 4. So if you found Joshua chapter 4, why don't you stand and we'll read together God's Word. Joshua 3 and 4 go together. Joshua 3 is crossing the Jordan River. Joshua 4 is building the memorial that commemorates what God did back in Joshua chapter 3. Now what I want to do today is just read the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 4, and then we'll go back and pick the rest up in the body of the message. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them with you, lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe, Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones may be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. They carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down there. Look with me at verse 9. What's Joshua doing down there in that river bed? Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you will bring healing to hearts that hurt, that you would remove anxiety, that you would restore joy. Pray that you would call people to yourself. And Lord, may this be a reminder, a memorial to your greatness given to us in Jesus. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated. As I sit at my desk in my office, I normally am sitting facing outward and looking at a book or the Bible studying. My computer is behind me. I don't spend much time looking at it because I don't actually know how to use the computer very well. I can use email, but I'm not certain that email is actually from the Lord, so I don't use it very much. I like to study. I like to read a book. And as I'm, I'm looking and uh, studying, I can... I can look up from what I'm studying, and in my office, over to the left-hand side, standing in a corner, is this large gold cross on top of a staff. 
It's about seven feet tall and it's about this wide and about this tall. And right in the corner of that brass cross is the name Clinton Century Presley. It's my grandfather. And that cross, after he died, my grandmother gave it to the church, and that cross was carried every single Sunday in procession leading into the time of worship at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church on Central Boulevard. If you were to get up from my desk and walk out of my office into the hallway, there's a, a bookshelf with several old books on it, and at the top of that shelf, is a trifold American flag. It's put into a wooden case with a glass front. That flag was draped across my grandfather's coffin. Morrison Biggers McCrory. That American flag was given to my grandmother and the reason I have it is it is a commemoration. I remember him being a part of fighting El Duce and, and the Nazis in World War II. Just two memorials in my life that remind me a little bit of where I come from and, and help keep me focused on where I'm going. We need memorials. As Christians, we need them. We need them because we are actually prone to forget. Let me give you three progressive A's. I, I don't know where I got this. I'm sure it's not a, original with me. But if you get spiritual amnesia, and I think people have that sometimes, spiritual amnesia will then lead to apathy, which then leads to apostasy. And, and the fact that God gives us his word, and here gives us two chapters, chapter three and four in Joshua, Two full chapters of text describing the people of Israel crossing over that little river, Jordan, and then memorializing it. The fact that God would do that indicates that there is great value for believers right here. This passage, what does it do for us? This, this passage reminds us that the wonderful works of God, they are worth treasuring in our memories. If God does something in your life, it's worth you putting it somewhere and remembering it. This reminds us that, that we, are, we are prone to forget. We forget how good God has been, how he saved us, how he's protected us, what he's provided for us. We just forget it. You see, remembering the acts of God and the good works of God, if you remember what God did in the past, what it does is it actually makes future problems seem smaller. Now, don't mistake this for nostalgia. This is not nostalgia. Nostalgia is a liar. Nostalgia tells you all that in the past was so great, I wish I could be back there in the past. But if you were back there, you would be reminded, well, no, it really wasn't that good. Nostalgia doesn't tell the truth. What a memorial does, though, memorials make us pause, look back, gain strength, and then move forward.
You see, God's work of salvation, God's work of salvation must be perpetuated in the memory of the next generation. Who's coming up behind us? If we believe that all history is God's history, and I do believe that, that all history is God's history, then I would press it further and make this the theme. God's history has a purpose. God has done what he's done in your life up to this very moment. He's done that on purpose with a mission. He's taking us somewhere. Now, this chapter is long. Chapter 4 is a long chapter. I just read nine verses. But what I'd like to do, just so you got the story, you never go wrong spending a lot of time in the Bible at church. You should do that. You went to a church where they didn't spend time in the Bible. You need to leave that church, go somewhere where you spend time in the Bible. I want to just walk through this passage and um, have you read it. I'll point out some things. We'll come back and just make some application. So you look at the, you look at the chapter and let me walk you through it. Go with me to verse 1. Notice in verse 1 that the, the people of Israel finished crossing the Jordan. Chapter 4, verse 1, the text says, they got over. So then the writer looks back and gives us some narration in verses 2, 3, and 4. Verses 2, 3, and 4, you find out that they are to take 12 men from the 12 tribes of Israel and pick up 12 stones, put them on their shoulder, and carry them out into the promised land at a place called Gilgal, right there on the edge of the Jordan, and stack them up. You get to verse 5 and 6. Verse 6, we find out there's a reason behind this memorial stone. Because there's a question coming. When your children get of age and they start asking the question, what do these stones mean to you? Verse 7, God says, here, you tell them this. Tell them I stopped the water, piled it up in heaps, flooded everything behind it, and the people walked across on dry ground. There wasn't even a muddy spot in it, verse 7 tells us. Verse 8 tells us that the people quickly obeyed. Verse 9 Verse 9, I'm going to come back to verse 9. Just look at it just briefly. Don't even, don't even stop. Just kind of walk slow by verse 9. Verse 9, there's another monument. This story is about two monuments. One that's going to be underneath the river. Verse 10, you'll see the central, the central place that God's presence has, the Ark of the Covenant, that is the presence of God, is the very centerpiece of this story. This story is about God. The people obeyed in haste. Verse 12 and 13, there you've got those three tribes. Remember them from a couple of weeks ago? Those three tribes that wanted to stay over on the other side of the Jordan River, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Turns out they were good to their word, and they're leading the way into the Promised Land. Chapter uh, 4, verse 14 the writer tells us that Joshua now has been elevated up to the rank of Moses. Verse 18, the priests that are holding the ark, they come out of the, on the other side of the Jordan, out of that riverbed, up onto the bank, and when their heel, the last priest, his last heel comes up out of that riverbank, the water goes back, the river goes back to normal. Chapter 20, they get to where they're going to lodge, not chapter, verse 20, they get to where they're going to lodge and they take out the 12 stones of Entoten and there at Gilgal, they set up this monument. Verse 21, verse 22, it's the same thing as verse 6. It's the questions for discipleship. What do these mean to you so that a father or a mother can say, this is, when I look at these stones, let me tell you what this means about God. 
Verse 23, we find out it's the Lord your God, what he did back at the Red Sea. You see the continuity? What he did at the Red Sea, he's done here at the Jordan, that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then verse 24, see that little phrase at the verse 24, that little phrase, so that, that's a purpose phrase that says everything before this is leading up here and so that, this happened for a reason, so that, two things, all the people will know that our God is mighty and something for, the, for God's people, that you might fear the Lord forever. Okay, that was the story in about two and a half minutes. What then do we learn? Let's reflect on this story, maybe make some application. How does this help you? How does this help me today? I'll give you a couple of points. Here's the first one. Number one, <clears throat> this story tells me that God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted. You can't see what he's doing. You don't know what he's doing. You might not even understand what he's doing. That's not up to you. You trust him. You get down to verses, about verse 5, you see the setup. And then in verse 6, we find out that we're going to stack these stones up. And you'll notice in verse 6 that this might be, you see it? This may be a sign for you. This is going to be a stone sermon. A silent stone sermon. Now, when you think about stone stacked up, don't think about the pictures of Stonehenge in Britain. Don't think about the pyramids in Egypt or Machu Picchu. Don't think about those places where people go and worship. These stones wouldn't be to worship. These stones are a sign. They're a reminder. They, they remind us of how good God is. They remind us of God's power. They remind us that God works on behalf of his people. This is, um, this is the picture. We have signs like this. We do that here at Hickory Grove. Behind me is a giant pool. There's the baptistry. We use that baptistry to follow through the command of Jesus in Matthew 28. And baptism is a sign of something that has happened. Being buried with Christ in baptism, raised to new life, a picture. Here in a few weeks, we'll have the Lord's Supper. We pass out the wafer and the juice, and we open it up, and we take that with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. We remember that Jesus Christ died on the cross in the place of sinners. God raised him from the dead, and any sinner that believes that will be saved. Those are memorials, signs, that point to what God has done. God is to be trusted. There's something else in this passage you might want to look at and see, and that is that our God is to be known. He is to be known. Let me show you where I get that. You'll see the two questions. You see it in verse 6, and then come down the page to verse 22. It's the exact same question, and the question has to do with the children seeing the stones scratching their head and saying, hey, Dad, what do these stones mean? And you see number six, what do they mean to you? Tell me, give me a verbal testimony. What is it that is done in your heart? Here, here's the same thing we see in, 
Exodus chapter 12 after the Passover. It's the same thing in Deuteronomy 6 with the Shema teaching the next generation of who God is and how God works. How does he save? Remember those three A's I gave you earlier? If you're going to write them down, spiritual amnesia, I would put amnesia on the page and then an arrow that goes to apathy. Amnesia, we forget. And if we forget, we have apathy, means we don't care. And apathy, I have an arrow that goes from there to apostasy. And that's how it works. You, you, you forget what the Bible says, and if you forget about it, then you don't care anymore. If you don't know who God is, why would you show up on a Sunday and worship Him? And if you don't worship Him, then we're one generation for absolute apostasy. Listen, we're a country that's pretty young, and we've seen a history of churches in the United States that at one time all of them held the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, the authority of the Bible. Once that's gone, and in most, in most mainline denominations it is gone, once that is gone, you've lost it altogether. I'll say it like this. Churches that stray produce people that quit. Church, churches that stray from the Bible, you finally come up to the point of asking, what is the use? And then there is no use. Amnesia and then apathy and then apostasy. I mean, honestly, you could just turn, just flip over to the book of Judges. You ever read the book of Judges? Look, I, I almost preached the book of Judges, then I read it. There are children in the room. It's hard to read some of that stuff. But you can read the book of Judges and you'll find out that the overwhelming theme is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Coming back to Joshua 3 and 4, this reminds us that God is to be trusted, that God is to to be known. We know him through faith in Jesus. I'm going to give you a third thing to consider. Number three, I said I had just a couple of these, right? A couple of points. So I got a few more than a couple. I have more than two and less than ten. We'll see how it plays out. Number three, that is to show, uh, show us that God is a God of Grace, a God of grace. There's something you should hear in every Christian pulpit that God is a God of grace. That grace is found in Jesus. Let me show you something in verse 7. Right there in verse 7, here's the, here's the content of what we are to teach. So verse 6, the children ask, what do these stones mean to you? Verse 7, here's the answer. Let me read verse 17. Notice what we're supposed to teach. Verse 7. <clears throat> then you shall tell them, here's what you tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off so these stones might be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. God's presence went down into a river, stopped the water. It piled up behind. It dried up on the other side. That God did something. 
You'll notice in verse 7, this is all God. This is what we believe about grace. We believe about being saved. That there's not, we don't believe salvation is God does his part. You do yours. You Here it said like this. You take the first step, God will meet you. Look, we were dead in sin. Dead people don't walk. God has to do it all. So what this, I mean, the text is, is pointing to God came, his presence stopped the water, dried it up to the degree that, that it's completely dusty. And here's this, this, this reminder of how different our religion is. We are not working up to salvation. We are working from salvation. In fact, there are a couple of words that describe Christianity in five words. The five solas, that word sola is Latin for only. You think of it like this, that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Bible or Scripture alone, and it happens for the glory of God alone. Here's a picture that, that our God is a God of grace. Let me press this a little further. I'll give you a fourth thing to consider. That is uh, that our God, God unifies, you might say like this, that God unifies his people around mission. That we are unified by our call to one mission, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Now you get that here in, in chapter 4. You'll see the unity in verses 1 and 2. I'll just point it out to you, just very quickly. In verses 1 and 2, you have Israel. It's one nation. But notice in verses 1 and 2, the instruction is, take one person from each tribe, pick up a stone, put it on his shoulder. So you have... 12 people from the 12 tribes of Israel picking up 12 stones, come out on the other side, put them all in one pile, and make one memorial. You have one mission. I'll show you another spot. Uh, come down the page, verses uh, 12 and 13, and you see those three stray tribes, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We talked about them earlier. They're going to be on the other side of the river. Well, they have come and joined forces with all the rest of Israel, a unified moving forward. What you have here is the centrality of God's mission of getting the people over the Jordan into the promised land. And if we deviate, look, Hickory Grove, if we deviate from the mission that God has given us, even one little bit, here at Hickory Grove, the centrality of our mission is the cross of Jesus Christ, Him crucified and preaching that, seeing people one to Christ and worshiping on Sundays together, lifting up the name of Christ. When we deviate from that, when something else becomes our agenda, when it becomes our focus, then we absolutely start to fragment. Anytime we come off the centrality of what God is doing, we threaten the very fabric of our unity. God unifies his people around a mission. That mission for us is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, with that, with that in mind, I've been working real hard to get to verse 9. Because here I want you to see, here's the fifth point, number five, that God 
sustains us when things get terrible. For those of you that have been through hard times, go, go to verse 9 here and circle it. God is going to sustain you when it's terrible. Like, I, I'm not OCD, but I got strangely obsessed with verse 9 this week. I read 25 different commentaries. There are opinions all over the board. The thoughts are divided. There is some debate, but the plainest reading, and that's what we do here, plainest reading of verse 9. Go with me to it, verse 9. Joshua. The 12 men from the 12 tribes have the 12 stones. They've crossed over. Verse 9. Joshua. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And as of this writing, they are there to this day. You see what Joshua did? Let's draw this down to a point. Joshua made a second memorial inside the riverbed. A hidden memorial inside the Jordan. Verse 18, the priests are going to come out and the river is going to go back to normal. You can't see that memorial at flood, at flood stage. You can't see it. Look, you can't even see that memorial when uh, the river as, is at normal stage. That memorial in verse 9, you can't actually see it until the land is in a drought. You've been there and the rain hadn't fallen. The place feels like a desert. Habakkuk would say, and the, the fig trees aren't blossoming. There's not a grape on the vine. Look out in the fields and the fields are not yielding any food. There's no herd in the stalls. When things got really bad, Joshua would walk back over there to the banks of that river, Gilgal. And he could look out over the placid waters of the Jordan and he could watch as that river, stops, as that river starts dropping. And finally, it gets low enough and bad enough, it would expose those stones in the bottom of that river. Then Joshua could remember. He could rejoice in the Lord his God. He, he could take joy in the God of his salvation. Now there's some memorial stones in your life that God has put down for you. They're, they're put there on purpose. I got, a, I got a wedding band on my left hand as a remembrance, a memorial of God's good grace in my life. I got a college ring on my right hand that is a reminder. I, look, I didn't, I didn't graduate magna cum laude. It was all just praise the laude. <laughs> Go to my office, you'll find notebooks filled up. Old, they're just old stuff, written prayers that seem silly to you, reminders of God's good grace. You come to my house and there in my little office at home behind me is a there's a little blue Bible that 
Several years ago, when I was going through a really hard time, I can reach back and see that's where God carried me with that Bible. You walk into my carport, my house. There's a 12-foot pew made out of heart pine. One board is the back and one is the seat. Came out of my very first church. And I was 23 years old when I went there. Been married six weeks. And how we survived that is only God's grace. You have memorials in your life, stones you can look back at to show you God's provision and His, His love and His care for you that remind us that this God, this God is to be trusted. This God is to be known through faith in Jesus. This God is a God of grace. He's not demanding of you to work hard so He'll love you. He loves you. This God unifies His church around a mission. This God sustains us in the desert. He sustains us when and things get terrible. I got a lot more I could say about this God, but I just want to call your attention down to verse 24. I want you to see that this God, this God is to be shared. What God does, we don't keep to ourselves. Notice what the text says. Go with me to verse 24, and there you'll find that so that statement. Everything before the so that is there to tell us what do we do now. Here's the purpose, verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. There's a, your life has an evangelistic element to it. The good things and the bad things, all that you walk through, all those things happen for a reason so the outside world will know your God does things. Look, it's been a hard week between the Sundays. It's been a hard week for me. Monday morning after I worked out and uh, got showered, getting ready to come in, and Kyler Smith from Mallory Creek Campus called me and one of our church members Graham Harrison, a 45-year-old man, fell dead Monday morning in the shower. Three beautiful children, a grieving new widow. As Providence would have it, Kyler and I got there before they brought Graham's body out. And we stood there in the yard with 50 or so neighbors, and as they brought his body out of the house, his wife and all of her friends Christians are singing a hymn. They bring him out of the house. I watched as his family grieved, yet grieved with hope as, as Kyler was able to minister to them Monday and Tuesday and planning the funeral. And they gathered Friday evening for a private viewing of Graham's body and stand there and pray and weep together. And then yesterday when we gathered for the funeral, Watching that widow come down there with her three children stand beside that coffin and weep and pray. Hear the gospel preached and testimony of his life and, and to watch that family lift up the name of Jesus in the midst of a terrible, terrible event. There's evidence that this God is, is powerful, that the world will know this God is powerful and this God 
is to be worshipped. See, see the text, verse 24? That you will fear the Lord forever. That you, that you will stand in awe and what He's done in your life and how He's provided and how He's loved you. This is what God is doing in your life. That, that people will see that this God is good, that He loves His people, that He saves those who are not worth saving, and yet He does it anyway at the cross of Jesus. God's history has a purpose. You, you call it providence. You should call it providence. You should love the doctrine of providence. Providence is God bending in this ark. God is bending the ark of your life, hard providence, smiling providence, good providence. He's bending the ark of your life so that you might see Jesus. This passage tells us that God is faithful, that God is to be trusted. God is powerful. He is to be worshipped. God is to be known in Jesus. I want you to know him and love him and celebrate all that God is doing in your life. Would you join me now as we pray together? I'd like to close this, this, I'd like to close this um, worship service with a time of invitation. I want to invite you, if you'd like to be prayed for, prayed with, maybe you just want to come and during the time of singing, just kneel here and pray. Here at Hicker Grove, we have our worship set up so that we start it with the word, we go into prayer, we sing songs of the faith, we hear God's word, and we trust the Spirit to move, and we give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe you'd like to come with some of our pastors. They'll be down in the front pew. Maybe you just want to come and pray by yourself. If God has spoken to your heart through His Word this morning, we invite you to come. Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. I pray you call people to yourself. I pray you would, I pray you would heal people. I pray that you would rebuild confidence pray that you would awaken people from apathy. I pray that you would show us the markers you've put down in our life. We trust you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing.